Um, we had had a brief discussion at some point about how nice it would be to have the sutras without the commentary. I wrote a note to the publishers, whom we know, and suggested that when they reissue this, they should just put it in the back as a supplement. And so in the meantime, Lakshman pulled out of the manuscript um, just the sutras, and if you happen to want a copy of it, just send me an email and I'll just ship it out to you. Okay? It's 13 pages. It's just nice, because they you relate to each other. And so when you sort of read them one after another, you get a different feeling, especially now that we have a clue as to what they mean. How do we give them an email? You just email me, or you can give me your name and I'll, if I can, if I write it down before I leave, I'll do that. And I'll send it to you. So, we're now going to work with Sutra number 217. Do we have any questions or thoughts from uh, previous weeks before we begin? Um, the last one was future karmic pain can be avoided, which I got very enthusiastic about that one. I thought that was a little one to put on your mirror. Okay. And then 217, the one after it says, the cause of that avoidable pain is the union of that which sees and that which is seen. And then Swami goes on um, to talk about this a moment. He talks about uh, the unfortunate habit that people get into, which has been really exacerbated by Christianity's focus on the crucifixion, that somehow to suffer proves that you're spiritually sincere. And there is a certain validity to austerities, to taking on deprivations and challenges in order to prove to yourself that you do have the will of overcoming. And even though Swamiji generally speaks against such a thing, he talked about seeing sakras in India who take on the, the posse of never sitting down and how their body lower bodies become very swollen. And he was, he was discussing about how most of the time when he saw people doing these extreme things, it was not inspiring. But then he talked about one um, young yogi that he met who had followed he was the same path, but never lying down. And he said his, his body was perfectly well formed and his face was radiant. But somehow, in his case, it was exactly what he was supposed to be doing. And therefore, it really worked for him. But Swamiji is saying here that, generally speaking, to just take on suffering, with the idea that somehow that's going to make him more spiritual, he, he suggests it's far better to just endure with courage and right attitude that pain which is your karmic lot um, in a certain sense because there's going to be more of a match between that and uh, your own reality. People often ask you know, what is the point of their karma? Well, there's going to be some challenge to your equanimity. I was on a radio program today just uh, somewhat removed from our path and our professors was uh, what do you do about having been born into a difficult family, toxic, sexually perverted? How do you overcome the karma? I started by saying it's a very hard question to answer in general. It's really very hard to find out what's really going on with the person. But the question usually is that there is this generic quality to all karma, which is that it has the power to persuade us that now we have to move away from our mental safe place. 
And whatever the details of it are, it's really a generic issue. It's either I am able to remember from joy I came, in joy I live, in sacred joy I melt, or something happens that causes me to forget. Because a relative mistreated me, because the world didn't recognize me, because my body is hurting too much, because my desires were unfulfilled. But just one thing happens, which is that we forget our connection to the divine. And so all karma really has the same intention. It challenges us to make our inner connection deep enough that nothing can dislodge us from it. I commented on several occasions uh, in recent times since Swami's anniversary is Moksha Day. I used that phrase that I've never seen Swami gravel, which was an odd phrase of my own choosing at that moment, but it's really accurate. The more I think about it, the more I remember it. It's that his connection with his inner reality was so strong that nothing could really move him away from that. That, that doesn't mean, as I said, that he didn't wasn't thoughtful at times and sorrowful at times or um, having to sort something out or it wasn't like he never had normal life experiences but he, he never disconnected because of those experiences he was always just solidly connected even if the, the wave on the ocean was something else and that's that's the judge really of how well you're handling the karma that comes to you is whether you lose your connection or not it's a, it's a point of interest and concern to me always when people who have been enthusiastically participating in our sangha here, whether for a month or a year or whatever it is, um, vaporize. Vaporize meaning that they're just they're there every week or three times a week and then all of a sudden they're not. They just turn into ghosts and they're gone. And when I hear later if they come back, if they ever come back. Oh, I had such a hard time. I lost my job, someone died. I broke up with my relationship. I lost my money, whatever it might have been. So I didn't come anymore. And it's always to me, it's like that is the critical moment. It's like when things get really different, difficult, which way do you turn? You turn back towards your spiritual life and realize that everything is such a mess that I have to hold on all the tighter, or do you let the karma sweep you away? And the karma often sweeps you away in this really sneaky manner. Oh, I was so sad, I didn't want to impose my sadness on everyone else. Ooh, that's really sneaky. That's negativity trying to persuade you that you have to relate first to it. And it gives you, as Master said, Swami said, I think, delusion, ins I love this phrase, insinuates itself into your consciousness with your own false reasoning. And it just does that, just insinuates and persuades you. But you just need to keep a very objective look at things. I was saying this last week about avoidable pain. It's like, because everything is such a mess, and because nothing else is working, I really need to cling all the harder. And if we, you know, if you've been through cycles like that, because people do go through cycles like that, just drive the point home. Why would I ever allow myself to, to let my karma pull me away from this? And it's enough, you know, that it's enough that we we get enough. We don't have to go out and seek it. Mm -hmm. And if we're not being particularly challenged, that's the time to um, 
that dive even deeper, form the habits when it's not hard, form the impressions in your mind that this is a positive solution. You know, even things Swamiji talks about, and he created the Festival of Light, which was now 20, more than 25, 26 years ago. Most of you hardly remember a time when we didn't have it, or don't remember a time when we didn't have it. But it was a big deal when he created a repeating ritual. Prior to that time, we never had a repeating ritual. And he was talking about the fact that almost all spiritual traditions have a repeating ritual, and there's a very good reason for it. Because it's a superficial um, idea of these teachings can be too easily dislodged. And sometimes if you hear the same truths repeated over and over, presuming that they begin at a high enough level that they don't just sort of dribble out into nothing. But the inspiration for the Festival of Light really was super conscious for Swamiji. He was in seclusion in Assisi, and he just felt the whole thing look itself through him. He often comments when he came to the story of a fledgling bird, he was working on it, and all of a sudden he found himself writing a fledgling bird. And he thought to himself, what is that bird doing here? <laughs> because it was just coming through him, it wasn't the product of his own thought. And he just watched it unfold in front of him. When he came to the song, The Thunder of Ohm, and he said, as he called it, this very jazzy rhythm came to him. Again, he was surprised, but he has long since trained himself to follow intuition without needing to understand it. But then, speaking of it coming from a high enough source, you just hear it week after week, and there is an inherent power in there, and it just drives itself deeper and deeper into our subconscious, and driving out alternative thoughts. And that's why it's beneficial to participate in these things. Because we never know in some samskars. We think we may think we're safe, but you never know when a samskar's going to hit you. Just, you just don't know what we have in our spine. And we have to always be, I consider it putting spiritual money in the bank, just so that that side will be weighted so if something else comes. And as I was saying last week, so you just have an unquestioned habit of sticking to these things. Um, and then Swami talks about going to the dentist again, which I think I would just pass right over, because we all talk about him going to the dentist a lot of times. He talks about Master's ability to rise above pain, too. You know, I, uh, he doesn't comment, but I will, about just a certain part of this that strikes me. Avoidable pain is when we as the consciousness experiencing life, imagine that what we are experiencing is the same as, what, as the one who is experiencing. It's a very subtle, I was on the phone, on the, I say on the phone because I was on the radio, but it's over the telephone again today. And I was trying to put in very succinct and direct words, we are not what we seem. We have this illusion of one reality, and it's so, um, Persuasive. This is extremely persuasive. It's very hard not to. I've told the story before of uh, Cory Tendu when she was in the Second World War in Amsterdam and they were hiding Jews in their house and they had these drills that they would practice in case they were raided by the Gestapo and they would 
wake her up from a dead sleep, put a flashlight, imitating the Gestapo under, under drills, putting a flashlight in her face and demanding in a loud, gruff voice, where are the Jews, where are the Jews? Invariably, in her subconscious state, she would say, behind the false wall in the room right here. <laughs> and uh, that wasn't the right answer. And so she, she said she, is always, she had always had a difficult time getting her bearings when she came out of subconsciousness out of sleep. And some people wake up fast and others don't. But they drilled her and drilled her until she could. I always think of that in, as a, a perfect analogy for the spiritual path. It's sort of like when somebody just turns to you and says, Who are you? Do you give your name or do you say, The Immortal Atman? You know, just like that. <laughs> Can you just make it so that your spontaneous reply is The Immortal Atman? And that that's really how you feel. And when things are threatening to drag you down, you have to feel miserable and helpless and hopeless. Just the previous one, you know, there are, um, there are many remedies for looming disaster. That was what we said in the previous one. And one of them is just constantly to, to train yourself. Oh, children of light, forsake the darkness. And it's just, we say that every week, oh, children of light, forsake the darkness. And then Swami makes us stand up and forsake the darkness, which I suppose is represented by our chairs at that point. We turn our backs on our chairs and we stand strong. <laughs> just affirming I have forsaken the darkness and very after a while hopefully life becomes really really simple and all obstacles look exactly the same and we actually genuinely lose interest in the details of our own lives at the beginning we're very interested in the details of our own lives exactly who said what to whom and why they said it and what I feel and why I feel it and there is a necessary stage. A certain amount of self-knowledge is essential. Otherwise, you're always being ambushed by subconscious things you don't know are there. But after you get a working knowledge of your own nature, it's nice to just completely lose interest in it. Because avoidable pain um, is, is happens when we imagine that the world outside is us. And then we're not just completely someone else. I, I had forgotten about the word Atman, which I only recently remembered because it appears in this. I've been using the word Jiva a lot, but Atman is also a marvelous word. Atman is the individual soul. That's actually more the equivalent of the word soul. The immortal Atman. And there's also something so grand about that phrase, isn't it? The immortal Atman. That's who I am. Just practice it in front of the mirror. Good morning, immortal Atman. <laughs> Just looking through your own eyes. Yeah, good girl. Yeah, because that's what you want. Because when this body begins to die, or when it goes through a great deal of pain, really, why should we suffer? Swamiji put it once. He said, suffering uh, persuades us that we have to relate to it. That was the way he put it. And, and he said that's part of the way it insinuates itself with its false reasoning. We imagine that we have to analyze it and think about it and feel it. And now again, I'm talking about a psychologically healthy person, so I don't want to be misunderstood here, but assuming that, once we're solidly on the path and we know what we're about, these things happen. Somebody, somebody used to often tell Swami that he had to use the phrase a lot, he had a lot of stuff to process, is what he would say. 
you know, no, I was busy because I had a lot of stuff to process. Finally, his absence, Swami said to me, what kind of stuff does he process? You know, just like that. <laughs> he was so bewildered by the whole concept. And in fact, this poor devotee was a bit obsessed with processing stuff. And I'm not really sure he ever finished. But you don't really. Swamiji talked about once when he was very, very busy. I think it was during the time he was raising money for Ananda. I mean, the original, to buy the original land. And he was teaching five nights a week and giving retreats at the village and um, writing the 14 steps. And just every single day was uh, action-packed and fun-filled and there was no margin in it. And he was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge one evening and he felt a cold come into him. He was just sitting there and he just driving and he just felt the cold come into him. And as soon as he felt it come into him, he also felt the temptation, as he put it, to relate to it. Oh, look, I'm getting a cold. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, my head feels stuffy. And my ear is beginning to hurt. I just felt the need to relate to it. And then it occurred to him that that's exactly how it was going to take over, by demanding that he relate to it. And he said he just, he acted as if it was sitting next to him. He turned to it and in a very loud voice declared, get out, get out, like that. He just ran away. <laughs> and he realized that that's part of how darkness holds us. It persuades us it's important. But it isn't, because it's just a passing scene. And when we identify that which sees, the immortal Atman, with that which is being seen, that's when the pain begins to multiply. Because all of a sudden, caught, in that ever-changing, never-satisfying wheel of karma. Because a lot of things are going to happen to us. We, you know, we've thrown the boomerangs out and they're just going to start checking back in one after the other. So a lot of things will happen to us. But we can experience exactly the same circumstance from many different perspectives. That's the word avoidable pain. Which is just a really great word. I love that word. Avoidable pain. It goes along with, there are many remedies, many remedies for looming disaster of all kinds. Looming disaster. Isn't that a big phrase? Looming disaster. You sort of feel it like this big cloud coming. But sometimes it is. But there's many remedies. And above all, there's the remedy of uh, inward detachment. So that even if it is washing a boot, well, there it is. And pretty soon it will be over. That was Swami's answer to a man who was just having really pretty bad year. Well, Swami said, all karma ends. That's about all I can say. Nothing of this type lasts forever. And it did. Time passes. I love to think about time passing sometimes. This will all be in the past. I've shared with you before, I read a a journalist who was kidnapped in the Middle East after being on assignment there. They had trained them about the possibility of being kidnapped. He was kidnapped for seven years. He was held a prisoner somewhere in one of those countries. He was not, not abused, but just imprisoned and restrained. And one of the, and I read his book, and one of the remedies was start writing your book while you're in captivity. And start writing your book as if it's the past and you're writing about it. It's one of the ways to sort of keep you sane and keep you hopeful. Imagine seven years of that just every day. Whenever I, I project myself into such a situation, 
because some of them I do. Um, I remember my friend who was, a, she was a disciple of Swami Satchitananda at that time, and she had no home. She merely traveled. She went from center to center and city to city and gave classes. She didn't get anywhere. And uh, she said the art of it was to live completely wherever you are. Even if you're just in a car going from point A to point B, just assume that this is your home and you're never leaving it. And it's actually, it's a very interesting practice because an astonishing amount of our energy is spent thinking about what was and anticipating what's coming. And what's about, you know, a third of our attention at the most is on what is actually going on. And we always imagine that somehow it's going to be better later, but we're not going to experience later any more than we're experiencing now. And then on what level are we experiencing? What level of detachment, what level of joy? It's, it's marvelously challenging. And just really totally fun because every situation becomes interesting. Okay, any other questions or comments? Yes, that's great. Good thing we did it might be. It's a very good, it's a perfect analogy yeah. for us. You know, Master encourages us to raise children tougher. It's interesting not to coddle them. We get into the habit of thinking every little hurt has to be corrected. And it just becomes a bad habit. Now, um, I'm tougher than I used to be, but you know, oh, I've just gone down two degrees. Oh, you know, now it's, now it's cold again. You know? Oh, now it's warm. <laughs> oh, now it's cold again. You know, just like this constant, just like it has to be just exactly right. For instance, like the three bears, is that the story of Goldilocks? Now it's too hot, now it's too cold. And I, I, I told the story in Sunday service about Craig walking with little Mateo. Craig is such a big guy, Mateo was a little tiny guy. And he was just training him to be a man. Because Mateo would scrape his knee and they cleaned it up. And then he's just saying to him, just like a coat, walk it off, walk it off. Which is, you know, I know, like nobody ever said that to me in my life. Walk it off. I think about that now when something happens, just walk it off. You watch the, the sports people a lot, and you can see the benefit of that kind of training. I mean, yes, everything can be carried too far, but when you actually stop to think about it, why should I be so concerned about every little thing? Much of suffering is mental. And you can you train the little child to every time some little tiny thing happens to experience it, you train them to say, yeah, you just train yourself. No, you're probably fine. Let's get on with the game. You don't have to identify so easily. These are incredibly important teachings. I practice it all the time whenever any little, little ache or pain comes. Just any little pain, even if you know, you burned yourself, you don't have to do it. But 
might even get really excited about this, and then he said, hmm. When many, many years ago, in 1971, Seba at Ananda Village, very strange accident. This was right the first summer I moved. Somebody's car had stalled out, and it, on the road, it blocked her car, so she, she had to stop. They were going opposite directions. She got out of the car and was standing there, and he poured gasoline directly into the carburetor. And it hit a spark and it exploded. But it exploded over the man who was doing it and actually burned her face. Put her face on fire. Yeah. But she was she's so courageous and so brave. She just sort of said, Excuse me, can someone help me? <laughs> and then turned around and she was burned. It was a miracle actually because she doesn't just she's not a scar on her face. It just uh, it was she, she, she went through what she called her, her Chinese period with her face really swelled up and her eyes closed. She had almost no pain and no scar. It was like the karma had to come. It's why she commented about that later. But, you know, she didn't panic. She didn't start shrieking. She just asked if someone could help her because something could have happened. She was People around her freaked out much more than she did. And it wasn't merely that she was in shock. It was just... Something quite impressive is going on, and we have to deal with it. We don't have to let it take us out. We don't have to get down the ground. Is it not working? Far beyond anything you could imagine. And um, it's just really quite impressive. Yeah, I mean, military training, uh, it's a big step forward for a lot of people. It, it, that's, that's the confusing thing about this world. You can't draw absolute lines. I was visiting a unity minister once um, when I was, used to travel and give a lot of programs at Unity Churches. And he was a good friend, and he was involved in some kind of anti-military, anti-war kind of movement that was a big deal at that time. And he just assumed that I would want to join him in that. And because, you know, we're neither fish nor fowl when it comes down to certain political expectations. Ananda just doesn't quite go where people expect us to go. And I, I had to say to him that I really couldn't, even though, of course, I myself would never go to war, and I think war is insane. Um, nonetheless, for certain people, it's a step forward. 
to master their, their own pleasure, to master their own selfish desires, to be willing to have a cause that they'll die for, to discipline themselves to that extent. I mean, they're becoming great yogis, really, by having that kind of iron control, assuming it's healthy and not detrimental, and, and so every argument can be made, but it's a step forward for people to join the military. I couldn't, for some, I couldn't advocate against it. It's admirable in so many ways. This is, that's where Swami's word, directional for the whole spiritual path, is just everything that we need to know. Exactly. It's quite, quite startling, really, what the human mind can be trained to do. And I would imagine that yogis incarnate periodically into those roles. Well, Master was William the Conqueror. He was, you know, he was a general in Spain. Swami Priyananda's Henry did fought a lot of wars. So it just depends on what's going on, both with the individual and with the situation. Joan Bark, just think about her. I mean, the guy she was defending was kind of a fop. He wasn't really such a fine fellow, but somehow or another, it just was the right thing to do. And she went to war, although she never herself actually carried a weapon. She just carried the flag. I didn't really realize that nuance of it. But she led the others into the hell. We can't, we can't have simple explanations. It, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, a, a strong militancy against certain things is not really because we've transcended it, but because we're afraid of it. And that's the Vaisha level of development, where the Vaisha tries to ease his own suffering by making everything around him conform to his ideas of what he needs. And a certain amount of social service and political action is really Vaisha. I'm so uncomfortable with this existing that I'm going to campaign to get rid of it. And it's not, it's not clear cut. Things are not clear cut. But that's why often when you become deeper on the spiritual path, you're not as interested in trying to force the world to change. You have a different perspective on the world. But also, you just no longer imagine that it's going to make any difference to my happiness. If I can get these things to change, you must behave my way. It becomes much more nuanced. Of course, one stands up against evil. If one's called upon to do it, but you do it from a different angle. Did you have something else? Just that things really don't change. No, nothing changes. You know, I, I've, I've worked in a number of areas where I was trying to make a change and make a difference. And, and it appeared to me it was this little teeny thing. That's we, we comforted ourselves by that. But basically, people have to change their consciousness. It's all about consciousness. Because, yeah. And even worse than that, you see, this is a this is a planet in early Dwapar, and the distribution of ignorance and enlightenment is a, is a, essentially a set formula for a planet in early Dwapar. It's not going to tip beyond a certain point of enlightenment versus delusion. So even if those particularly deluded people, some of them, grow to become enlightened, the space of delusion will remain, and so other deluded souls will be attracted to incarnate in that space. And the whole percentage will never shift until the whole planet shifts. And that's what you watch, and it's, it's distressing. It, uh, there's a particular charity which is called Mother Miracle School in Rishikesh, which is founded and run by people that we know. It's a very fine group, and we've watched this uh, woman 
um, and it escapes me at the moment, but shy love. Um, anyway, it's close. I'm, I forgive me here. I can't remember the name right at the moment. Um, but she's built it from the ground up, and and now serves, you know, many hundreds of under underprivileged children in the Rishikesh area. What was the point of what I was going to say? And I give her money, on the, you know, occasionally. I can't bear to adopt a child. I just can't bear to to see their unhappiness and all of that up close. It's just, I, I just find it very hard because it, your, your heart hurts for all these people. And so I help her feel more personally. They have a system where you pay for a child, one child every month, or it your child. But I found in a strange way I didn't want to have my own child. I, I wanted to help her, but I didn't want to have my own child. I didn't want to have to be um, engaged that much. I don't know how she does it. They like take a hundred children and like five hundred parents come to try to get into their school. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to do it. But she does really wonderful work. What is the point of all this? It's that individually you can expand your own consciousness by compassionate care and by selfless service. And this lady's always wanted to do this and she's been doing it for years and she does wonderful work. But it's not and it will make a difference in all those children's lives will completely change them. They have the karma, <clears throat> and she somehow has the confidence to be able <coughs> to select among all those who want to come, those who will benefit from what she has. She can sense their karma. Swamiji, in his, and I'm sure that's how she can do it. I'm sure she's just comfortable knowing that these are the children who will benefit. These may all want to come, but they won't all have the capacity. Swamiji wrote when he was first writing about our plans for India, one of the things he wanted us to do was to start a miracle, uh, an orphanage. And he suggested that we go around and find, these are his exact words, children with bright eyes and bring them into our orphanage because he, those would be the ones that would be ready to transition and accept what we have. And the others would be born into those circumstances and they're not finished with those circumstances. And no matter how hard you try, you can't pull them out of it because they're just... Well, the indigo children are the ones who are ready to transition into a more refined way of life. Who could move from Tamil Buna into Raja Buna and from Raja Buna to Sattva Buna. That's what uh, the next uh, sloka is about, the next sutra is about. Any other questions or thoughts on this? Yes. The whole question of helping people and dealing with suffering in the world is a gigantic one that cannot be revisited too often because it's very complicated. Yes. Just a detail, I didn't get the distinction between jiva and atman. I'm not sure I know the distinction between jiva and atman. I think of jiva, maybe, I think of jiva as essentially the spiritual equivalent of the individual. It's like the jiva is your personal identity that goes through many incarnations. The jiva is the one who used to be the diamond and is now Paramahansa Yogananda. It's that individual spark. The immortal Atman is the divine self. I don't know. It, it's, it is individual, but I think it's also infinite. It is. The spark is very I think I would be beyond myself to explain it, so maybe we should go home and Google it. Can you explain it better? Um, I'm not entirely sure, but I think Atma is untarnished. Say so, again? Atma is untarnished. 
So it doesn't when it goes through incarnations it doesn't carry anything. Uh-huh. It's it's that string that goes through but nothing sticks to it. Nothing sticks to it. it the jiva is engaged more, is that correct? The Atman is is defined in the book as the immortal, changeless divine self. I use the word jiva when I'm trying to talk about and I don't the word ego doesn't work and the word soul is too inaccurate. No, there's, he doesn't define jiva here. The jiva is the individual self, really. Right, but that's an individual who's freed while living. Jiva, jivan means the individual. So they, they're worded a little differently. I mean, they mean something a little different. I'll continue to use jiva, but I like the immortal on. <laughs> I think they're both variations on the English word soul and more accurate. If I knew what they were, yeah. Uh, yeah, sometimes my lack of scholarship does defeat me. <laughs> Thank you for embarrassing me, Tandva. Now shall we go on? <laughs> Ready? Okay. Uh, sutra number 218. What is seen, experienced in this world, consists of what is inherent in the three gunas, the light of refined awareness, the impulse toward activity and inertia, and is present throughout the objective universe, providing both sense experience and inner guidance toward liberation. You say that again because it's really a long sense. What is seen or experienced in this world consists of what is inherent in the three gunas. The light and the three gunas are the light of refined awareness, that's Sapaguna, the impulse toward activity which is Rajaguna, and inertia, which is Tamaguna, and is present throughout the objective universe, that's the three gunas, providing both sense experiences and inner guidance toward liberation. So then he goes on to talk about the gunas. The gunas are a really interesting concept, and they've sort of been hanging around for a few sutras here. I think it's worth thinking about them again. There's some of these templates that... Uh, become very helpful as, you know, sort of generic things if we can understand them properly. When Swamiji was teaching uh, the course he called Superconscious Living, and we were working with it for a while, he, he made a point of sattvic energy, rajasic energy, and tamasic energy. And it, it's another way of very simply looking at yourself and asking yourself the question, where is my consciousness? Because, as I've been saying with all of this, it's just a question of where is my consciousness? And so we want to know if our consciousness is going, as defined here, toward refined awareness, if it's just going toward the impulse toward activity, or if it's just lying on the couch, just being a blob. And um, when Nitai was teaching the Superconscious Living Course, he made up these little guna squares, and they were different colors. The Rajasic one was red, and the Tamasic one was black and the sattvic one was white. And so every 10 minutes or half an hour, you ask yourself, you carry a supply of them in your right hand pocket, you'd ask yourself, what kind, what's the quality of my energy? And whatever the quality of your energy was, you would take the appropriate square and you'd put it in your left hand pocket. And then at the end of the day, you'd pull them out and see where your consciousness had been during the day. It's actually an extremely clever exercise. And whether you actually keep the marbles or the squares in your pocket, it, because you know, once the past is the past, we don't remember. 
clearly. But if every half hour, hour, you ask yourself, where has my energy been going today? And it just immediately brings you back to what am I actually doing right now? Am I restlessly active or am I calmly aware? Or am I just seeking to escape consciousness at this point? And it's one of those realities that you can just lay over every single situation and you can always tell what's happening. And it's, it's also a progressive situation. If you're feeling inert, the impulse toward activity is progress. If you're just restlessly running around, you need to refine your awareness. And that doesn't mean you stop your activity. This is a beautiful way to put it, but you refine your awareness. Am I just being busy for busy's sake? Am I just impatiently trying to make things happen without thinking of the qualities of my consciousness? Swamiji, and he was criticizing me for just being um, overextended, was really the actual word, and so that I became rattled. And he said to me that you don't necessarily do more good by just doing more. That the quality of your consciousness, the quality of your magnetism, is actually what creates the good effect. And so just moving around. I, I, I met this woman once, I think she was a banker, but it's really important she might have been a realtor. I met her in some professional situation. And I know everybody has an immortal Atman inside. And everybody has a spine and has chakras. But if I didn't know that, I would believe that this was the only creative being without a center. She seemed to have no center. I could not find her center. She was simply a constant impulse for activity. She was either talking or moving or thinking or, I don't think we had cell phones in those days, but she, she never had a point of rest. Just was just constant in her mind. And, I mean, that's what the world is like these days, just this darkening energy. It's just, it's even, as long as I've been doing this, I still get freaked out sometimes. Just like, how can people not notice how, how destructive this is to our peace of mind? But they don't, because the guna that they're tuned into is not refined awareness. And so they, they're not suffering from it. They're, they just experience it that way. I, I go to the health club and I, you know, I have this, um, which is becoming really quite an obsession against this horrible music, so-called, this horrible sounds that they play, especially as women in the indoor swimming pool and you can believe that they have a loudspeaker system in an indoor swimming pool. That was not, that was not the brightest guy in the room who had that idea, because of course they echo like crazy. And they, they have these classes and they'll still turn on this stuff. And it's just, to, my, to me it's almost literally unbearable. And I just think, Am I the only one in here who knows this? You and everybody else are just going about their business. But if we had our little Buddha squares, we would be able to tell. And it just, it's this, just this restless impulse of activity that just seems to satisfy them. And they're not noticing. But we can notice. And to me, what happens then is that I have to pay attention to my inner consciousness, which really takes at that point. I become quite vulnerable to my external circumstances. My most emotional time in my life is at the YMCA of Nickling Horrible Music. <laughs> I said to David, I, my response is so out of proportion. I really have no idea why, but I, I've become almost desperately sad. 
And I just can hardly stand it. They have, if they have a stack like this of complaints for me. <laughs> I finally went in and said, am I the only person who ever complains because if I am, I will stop? No, no, there's others, so I'll just keep up my tiny little campaign. <laughs> But, no, but see, the reality is, in the universe there are three gunas, and everybody attunes to different ones of them. And it's, it can't be helped. I mean, I, I'm, as I said, I just went through this a couple of days ago. I just came home shattered. You know, I didn't want to... I almost cried from watching myself. I can't believe that I'm reacting like this. But somehow, certain, sometimes certain things on this planet just... When I was looking at the, all the children in Rishikesh and thinking about the poor people who didn't get in, that was a pretty tough moment too. That was in a central mind in a different way. But um, Shaila, Shaila, that's what it is. But we have to just recognize and accept it. But here's, here's the other part of it. This is what I was wanting to say, which is really so interesting. They said, um, Sattva-guna can lead you toward illumination, but does not in itself provide illumination, because it's still rooted in the ego. A man may have excellent human qualities, but as long as he sees those qualities as related to his ego, they will define only his human nature and will not take him beyond that nature. They do provide guidance, and that's what the sutra says, um, and they provide inner guidance toward liberation, by pointing us in an upward direction. And then he says, um, and then he gives the example of people at Ananda who have sattvic attitudes and selfless attitudes. And he's really right. Ananda's been so interesting because, you know, the, the same crowd has been hanging around together for 40 some years. And you really get to see what happened with certain kinds of attitudes. And I'm always very interested when I see someone sort of holding on to an attitude that I feel is questionable. And the experiment has gone on long enough to see the result. Oh, look, look at what happens if you hold that attitude. And look at what happens when you hold this attitude. That's one of the reasons why we were ready to make finding happiness at this point. Because it was just like, there's been a lot of water under the bridge. There's been a lot of people living this lifestyle. There's been a lot of experiments. And we can confidently say, that these are principles that do apply and that can be worked with. But what Swami is pointing out here, and this is a very subtle point on the spiritual path, but it's very important, being nice, behaving well, looking good, is not the same as being free. And it, being, being nice and doing the right thing and having good qualities gives you an experience of refined awareness which separates you from the downward pulling energy, so it will point you toward liberation. But you're not a saint merely because you do a lot of good works. You're a saint when you realize that your inner reality is your true nature, and everything that happens on the waves and the ocean is simply not you. It's much more subtle 
much more subtle reality. That's why Ananda doesn't dedicate itself to charitable works. We might do a little more than we're doing. I'm not against it, but it's not our path. We have been there and done that, and selfless service is always good. One needs to do what one feels drawn to do. But inherently, it doesn't please God any more than anything else unless you're using it to overcome the evil. You get good karma for it, as Swamiji said, but it doesn't liberate you. You can serve soup forever, and you'll get a lot of good karma for it, for people who are hungry. But you won't become liberated unless in doing it, you shift your identity from the outer reality to the inner reality. And that's why once you start shifting that identity, you may not need to be doing that anymore. You'll find another kind of work, and this is where everything becomes directional. When I was visiting Mother Teresa in Calcutta, which we did a few times, that kind of life is, is very, very familiar to me. Um, they have a very ordered, regimented life. In that ashram there, the, the nuns have two outfits. They go to Mass at a certain time, then they go out to the courtyard, and they fill their buckets from the water tap, and they wash the outfit they're not wearing, and they hang it up, and then they head out and do their work. And just all of that. It, it, and they live in these little stone rooms. It's all just very comfortable to me. It just seems like, oh yeah, this is what you do. You don't own anything, and you just follow this routine. I can easily understand how people live that way, and live that way, but it, I can also feel that it's not going to liberate me to do that. It's a comfortable habit almost. You have to move into something else. That's the path of self-realization eventually. It's very important. Um, he says here, Kamasic energy does not give happiness. And he has this extra point which I love. Rajasic energy, the impulse to action, gives satisfaction but not happiness. Isn't that an interesting distinction? So you feel very satisfied with all your hard work. But it's sattvic energy that gives us inner peace and happiness. And since happiness is what we seek, we realize with more refined awareness, we find happiness, and then we realize that happiness is what it is that we want, not merely the satisfaction of ceaseless activity. This is, to a certain extent, why the social service, after a while, you have to think another way about what you're doing. That's why Mother Teresa herself says, I'm not helping the poor, I'm doing what Jesus asked me to do. Which is just, of course, a huge distinction. Because doing what Jesus asked her to do will liberate her from outward identity. He happened to ask her to serve the poor, but that's not why she's doing it. And, and that's how the, the shift begins to happen. Well, let's take a few moments break and then we'll come back. Um, I experience um, Ananda is ceaseless inner, is ceaseless activity, pretty much. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, we just finished with the free and clear thing, and now we've got mm-hmm. the members' tea, and then mm-hmm. I hate to look ahead at the calendar to find out what's no, next. No, 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 you're eager to look ahead at the calendar. Am I? <laughs> yes. Well, sometimes we meditate. And so I suppose that's when we're being sattvic. Oh, no, we're quite sattvic in our world. Anyway, go ahead. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's what, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I, I know that when, I, when I'm thinking, when well, it's more like a feeling God is the doer, I can feel relaxed and things just seem to flow. 
And so that's more headed towards Southland? Well, let me put it this way. I'll start by going back here because I was looking for it. In our Ananda communities, we have a chance to observe one another at close quarters. Mm -hmm. what? At close quarters. Sometimes over a period of many years. Those who pitch in happily and willingly, no matter what is required of them, are always happy. Those who think, what's in it for me, are never happy, no matter how many good things come to them. And those who think, work, 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 always more work, are always unhappy. Now, that has to be balanced against. <laughs> then again, those who think, I will find peace in whatever I do, are always not only happy, but calmly at peace within themselves. So going back to where Swamiji said, the best way to overcome the ego is selfless service with love and attention to the needs of others. See, most of us do not have the option of expressing sattvic energy without activity. Most of us, when we stop, go tamasa. We do not go up, we go down. So therefore, we are far more uh, better off being active and trying to spiritualize and use the word here is perfect. He uses the perfect word here. Refined awareness. Refined awareness does not imply either action or stillness. It just implies refined awareness. So refined awareness is, oh, we're going to do it. Let's do it beautifully. I mean, look at this. All this stuff that they're doing to decorate here. I mean, they don't need to do that. It's just that why not? Let's create something really beautiful for everyone. Let's do selfless service with loving awareness of other people's needs, what they would enjoy, what would make them feel uplifted. That's the best way to overcome the ego. And so we are very active. We're very active for two reasons. One is we chose to incarnate as part of the generation that is establishing Master's work in the West. And it's not a time when we're going to just get back to sit back and enjoy that. I remember once when somebody brought to Swamiji because we had a lot of experience with people at Ananda saying, work, 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 all we ever do is work, I came here to meditate. But when they try to meditate, they do not have more energy, they have less. And I remember somebody coming to Swamiji once with something Master had written about how much you should work and how much you should meditate. And the proportions were way different than the life we were living. Swami looked at him and said, he said, oh, that's for later, that's not for now. <laughs> Meaning later on in Master's mission. It just, this just doesn't apply yet. And he's also, if we're honest about ourselves, this is a very, very rajasic country. And so this is the American way. And we're Americans, we have that in us. It's not like this, this culture um, lends itself to calm contemplation. And it, but it's an entirely an individual question, and you have to be scrupulously honest about yourself. If you really can meditate more, and your energy stays really high, and, and you really are getting more out of meditation than you would out of all the things that people are asking you to do, you should definitely go toward the meditation side. It's all directional. I mean, there's a story that Swami tells in the path of, uh, this, the work they were doing, I think, to finish something for the dedication at Lake Shrine, and this one man just didn't show up for work. And when Master said, where were you? He said, sir, I was meditating. Oh, good. He <laughs> just like, he knew that he was really meditating, and therefore that was a higher duty. 
But what we have to ask ourselves is whether I'm merely resisting putting out the energy or whether I'm genuinely being drawn to our meditation, and that's just the truth you have to figure out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, when I hit a wall, mm-hmm. I sometimes I can convince myself or realize that I'm um, just resisting, and mm-hmm. then I'm able to to go past it. So hitting a wall is pretty much resisting. Oh, Swamiji said to me, though, you know, you don't do more good by doing more because he saw that I became rattled and I needed to pull back enough until I became centered again before I began to put out energy because my energy was... I was not expressing refined awareness. I was I was being tamasic in my... I was I was tamaraja. I was active. But it was, a down, it was a darkening energy. It wasn't uplifting. It's an extremely individual question. I know when one woman was working all the time and her friend said to Swamiji, you should tell her to take some time off. And Swami said, I know what's right for her. Because whenever she took time off, she just went into a mood. And she was far better off working all the time. She meditated, and she meditated steadily and regularly. But she didn't need time off. She wasn't ready for it. She had to, she had to work for many years before she had transformed herself enough to be able to stop and not go to So it's very, it's very, very individual. But you have to act with refined awareness. If your awareness is not refined, you need to work for it. And it comes out in many different ways. But Nanda is just a really, really busy place. We are an extremely high energy asha. And we're not really busy. I don't think that's the right word. We're just very high energy. We're very high energy. And we are always creating something that inspires people. And if, what would happen if we didn't? What would people do if we didn't? If we weren't having this big event on Saturday night. What would people do instead? Do you think that they would meditate for eight hours that night? Uh, I mean, you know, what are the chances? So when people will meditate for eight hours, we'll stop doing so much. It's going to be a different experience. Um, reading the last paragraph and sentence here, I realized that I think I might have Excuse had... Excuse me, what uh, 218. Okay. In as much as. Uh-huh. Uh, I think I've had maybe some misconception for years, possibly, thinking that our goal was to find ourselves where we could rest in the place of the sattvic right. energy. And yet here he says... Uh, search of all men is for happiness mm-hmm. have an incentive to rise through the three gunas until they develop a desire to get out of the ego and out of the gunas all together I don't think I've heard that before so like what are we talking about here? Yeah, yeah. yeah actually I appreciate your highlighting that because that is exactly what I also really learned this is the first time I really understood this the gunas are a feature of the waves on the ocean. If you, and he's used the waves on the ocean lots of times with different parts, but the part that's closest to the ocean, the part that's thrusting upward, the part that's separating itself the most from the ocean. And the image, and you, you think of Tamaguna as an inertia, and the, tam, the most tamasic part of the wave is the part that's the farthest from the ocean. The image gets a little confused, but you can still see. 
So even on the surface of the ocean, there are different vibrations in that activity. And, and using the word directional, so we naturally, in our um, thrashing about on the surface of the sea, we naturally want to move in the right direction of refined awareness. But eventually, we just drop away from that level of reality altogether. And sattvic energy is not um, free energy. It's just the best we can get on the surface of the sea. The wave hangs out close to the sea, and that's better than always trying to separate ourselves from the sea, but ultimately we just want to merge into it. And there's always that, that's why Swami says earlier in this, even saints manifest the three gunas. Maybe the saint only manifests Kama Guna when he lies down to rest. He doesn't have any darkening qualities in his own consciousness or any resistance to God's will. But still, there'll be a time when he'll, um, well, when Swami will sit and read a P.G. Woodhouse story. <laughs> That's about as kamasic as it gets for him, not for him, you know, just pure entertainment, relaxation, rather than writing the Patanjali's commentary or something like that. So there's always a spectrum. But it's a question of you know, where that spectrum is. But then ultimately, you have to move out of activity altogether. A master said, if the missionaries had only meditated, they would have made progress much more quickly because they were so serviceful and selfless in their service and so self-sacrificing. If they had actually done something to transcend the level of ego awareness altogether, then they really could have progressed. See, because Satwaguna is still associated with the ego level. It's still, I'm doing, I'm doing really good stuff, but I'm, I'm still doing it. When, when there's no I, no identification of an I to be active, then you'll transcend the degrees altogether. That's the definition of the Master. He's transcended the three things. Yeah. It's really, it's very subtle. And these concepts, um, I, can't, I can't distinguish between Jiva and Atman, but they're very, they're very, very subtle, and there's no equivalent in English. We, have, we just have to use these words because English can't say things that are as subtle as this. And I've, I've studied these over and over, and each time I think, oh, yeah, I really, this is the first time I have to say that I really captured what these things are about. And I've been moving those little squares from my right to my left pocket for a lot of years. <laughs> it's really, it's a fun one to look with. And it also, it's a way to describe things. Oh, you know, like for example, we'll have this big party and it'll be quite fun. But it'll also be very sattvic. It's just like, well, we can be very active and still be very sattvic because it's refined awareness. And you can have, be, everybody can be very quiet, but not very sattvic. Yeah. Okay, any other questions? What's your comment? All right, so let's see, should we start on one more? I think we have enough time to do it. Okay, let's do 220, because that's what comes next. Or did we? No, no, 219 is what comes next. Sorry, you'll have to wait for 220. I know, I'm patiently waiting for sutra number 220. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> can't wait till we read sutra number 220. Okay, but we're going to read 219. The stages of the gunas are gross, Less gross, 
<laughs> Actually, some of the word gross is such a gross word. Yeah, it's, it's an onomatopoeia, sort of. The stages of the gunas are gross, less gross, definable, and beyond definition. Um, Swami has a short commentary, and I'm glad. Okay. He calls the gunas are veils over the light. This is again why the gunas are part of creation and not the stillness of light itself. Um, the Tamo Luna is the fourth veil and it darkens the light. Um, Rajotama is the mind without the fourth veil. The qualities that manifest are less gross and therefore less specific. Rajosattva manifests, I'm just reading because I don't know what else to say, definable traits, because this takes the mind upward, you know, active, active, sattvic energy. That's a lot of what we put out. We're very Rajasattva, okay? We're not just calm, we're not just still, we have a great impulse to activity, but we do it with refined awareness. And it takes the mind upward by specific actions, the virtue of which is that they purify one's nature. That's really very important. We're purifying our nature with all the selfless work that we do. We're just constantly turning our energy and attention toward the service of others. And you just do that over and over and over and over again. And the impulse to indulge yourself gradually dies away. And that's why Swami says it here. People who just pitch in and do what's needed and aren't thinking always, what am I going to get? And work, work, work. I just didn't have to work so much. We gradually purify our nature. And uh, that's just, I've also learned from Patanjali the incredible power of seva, which I've always known, but I never brought to a focus. Sattva is the last veil through which the light shines clearly, though indefinably. And here's his last sentence, which I have no idea what it means. Kindness, non-attachment, humility, and the light cannot be as clearly defined as greed, avarice, and lust in those qualities. I'm not really sure exactly why. Yeah, I read that about four times in my note here says, what? <laughs> so I'm just going to leave it, and maybe by next week we'll have some ideas on that one. As we might. But so that's the less definable. The most subtle qualities are the least definable. You know, I just, I just don't really get it. So, and he's not here for me to ask him to clarify it, so there you have it. Yeah, this is exactly what I thought you were going to say. They're more related to the material world and therefore more discernible. Yeah. Uh huh. There you have it. And the ones that are not related to the material world are are less discernible. Yeah. Just like you They're, said, for example. Yeah. Astral qualities. Ast- more astral qualities, so you can't really see them and point to them as clearly. Yeah, because they're not as related to the material world. Talk of us reaching for the mind. It seems like, um, like we talk about the nature of the soul is to be blissful, to be all those whatever super beyond sattvic qualities. Uh-huh. And so that if that's the basic core nature of all of reality, well, how do you define it? It's yes. only when creation comes in there and breaks off specific little bits of the ultimate reality truth that you can define it. Right. It's exactly it sort of right. Sense. That's exactly right. And if you think about it, just like with some of those words that he listed, mm-hmm. you know, greed. Okay, greed, pretty easy to define. I want this and this and this and this. I want it all for me. Okay, you can define right. that kindness. 
it's a little harder. Unkindness, you can imagine, okay, like you go up and you make somebody upset and you, and, and you can give that a definition, but kindness, it, it, it doesn't feel like there's a specific thing that you're doing to be kind. Exactly I mean, just right there, if you just try it, yeah. you can sort of see that's hard to define. No, that's much exactly more right. Right. Yeah, duality is more pronounced. And you have to have duality in order to find things. Well, thank you, everyone. I'll cross out the what. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was just too late in the day. Very good. Okay. Well, we have only five minutes. Let's see if we can get anywhere with 2.20 since you requested it. Any more comments or thoughts? So we can keep Joe on tender hooks until next week. Will the devotee reach salvation? We have the little poor devotee tied on the railroad tracks and the train of delusion is bearing down upon him. <laughs> Will the guru rescue the devotee? <laughs> 220. That which sees, experiences through the senses, though apparently colored by the mind, is in reality pure consciousness. That's where the word Atman came in. The pure consciousness of the Atman is not touched by what the ego experiences through the senses. We should try to remain unaffected by anything, and I love this, to be never afraid, ever unmoved by gain or loss, loss untouched by any pleasure or pain. Now, Jill, did you have a specific reason for wanting us to go there, or did you just? Well, no, I just thought that sounds Yes, it does, doesn't it? And then Swamiji, but he goes on to have that little discussion, which he's had quite a few times. It is really worth saying. To be non-attached, unmoved, untouched by gain and loss does not mean that you don't have a constant experience of joy. And it's also partly, it's just our path. We're kind of a technicolor path. And Master was a full, just partly because he was an avatar, Swamiji said, he gained his liberation long ago. So he had no necessity to protect himself um, from the world. Um, if you're in an ashram where the, whoever is leaving the ashram is themselves more vulnerable to delusion, although they may still have a great deal to give and to teach, they may have to establish a pattern of living that also takes into account their own vulnerabilities. Swamiji once said to us as colonies, and it's a very important statement, he said it would be presumptuous not to take your own spiritual welfare into account in the decisions you make and the things you do. You can't just pretend that we ourselves are not vulnerable, we're not self-realized masters. Even if we have responsibility for making something happen, we have to also pay attention to the effect it has on us. Meaning um, that we can enjoy and we can experience and we can do all things to a point, but we have to also watch. But Master, because he was so free and had been free for so long, he could just experience everything. But he also set the tone for us. And Swamiji himself lived the same kind of life. He traveled, he enjoyed art, he enjoyed shopping, he enjoyed um, nice restaurants, he enjoyed just so many different things. And he sort of allowed all of us to kind of live with refined awareness and not having to make our spiritual path one of austere rejection. We aren't like those nuns living in those cells, washing one sorry and wearing the other. And it's a perfectly valid path. 
in which nothing, they just don't, they don't take in any of this world. Instead, we live in this world. This is a little more challenging. And it's much easier to just set up that little form and set up those walls and know what you're supposed to do and not ever have to change it. I remember thinking when I was a young monastic in uh, my 20s at Ananda Village, I started thinking, well, I, would, I thought a lot about SRF because that was the monastic order that we had contrast to, and we were so free and so happy, and um, uh, we just having such a great time together, and they were so defined. And I, I thought to myself, you know, they weren't like that when Master was there. They were very free and happy when he was there, but gradually after he died, the walls of the thing closed in around them. And I sort of wondered to myself, what will happen to me if the walls close in around me? And I also thought to myself, both positively and negatively, about those kind of monastic orders where you just enter into the life and you a more cloistered order, where the pattern of your life is always the same. And you could anticipate 50 years from that moment that you would be doing exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. And on one hand, I thought to myself, what marvelous freedom there is in that. Just all decisions are taken away from you. You don't have to bother with anything. You have just, all you have to do is just remember God. I and mean, that's why they do it. And everything else is just a pattern that you don't even have to question. There's a lot of power in that if you take it in the right way. And there's a lot of challenge in the life that Swamiji has given us, where we are not allowed to repudiate the things of this world. We must learn, as Master did, to enjoy everything with the joy of God. Now, of course, we have to take our own vulnerabilities into account. And this is not a license to behave foolishly by any means. We have to be, in fact, very careful about what we do. But we are commissioned to enjoy everything with the joy of God. And it really gets to be quite fun. Not that one goes out and seeks opportunities to try to enjoy something you wouldn't normally enjoy, but when life thrusts it upon you. I haven't mastered the YMCA when the music is now. <laughs> I just simply so far can't. But many, many, many things that you just find yourself standing, I'm waiting at the DMV, and I was foolish enough to go in without an appointment, which is uh, a separate astral universe, the Department of Motor Vehicles. I spent about two hours there. Just, I, it was like entering another, you know, another dimension that I didn't know was there. You know, you just, like, you enter into these places, but you always bring your spiritual heart with you, your immortal Atman. Mm-hmm. My new favorite word. It's always there. And the joy of that, and just the, the childlike glee and enthusiasm, that's one of the things we practice. We're very good at clean, bright entertainment. <laughs> and it's a way of just taking the impulses we have in and making them suffer. Finding a new way to find joy in the little things of life. Well, any thoughts or questions before we call it a night? Okay, so we made it all the way through. Uh, let's see, we started with. Um, 117 and we went through 220, 217 and we went through 220.